0: Hey everybody, I'm so excited to have Matt from Drift here. You know, I've heard a lot of his, you know, I've listened to his podcast. Wes Bush told me like, you gotta get Matt on this show. He's just an awesome guy.
1: How's it going, Matt? How are things with you? Things are good. Thanks so much for inviting me and
0: having me on. How are things with you this afternoon? Uh, You're based out of Boston, right?
1: Yep, based out of Boston. It's been a, a bit of a long day. We're in the process of planning for uh, Q3 goals for our product team. So we're going through all sorts of cycles where we're wow. figuring out what are the missions for the teams. Uh, we're doing concept work for that. We're trying to get ahead on what those goals are going to look like and how they're aligned with the rest of the business. Uh, some of which I'm, I'm sure that we'll talk about in, in some of our concepts here. But yeah, it's a fun, fun week. This is always a very busy, <laughs> but fun time.
0: Well, I, I want to thank you then for jumping on this podcast. I want to make sure that know, people get a lot of value out of this, but like, thank you for making some time for this. Of course. I'm excited to talk about growth and product at Drift. But before we do, you know, for our listeners who might not know what Drift is, and maybe they're living under a rock because Drift is everywhere, essentially. What is is Drift?
1: Yeah, Drift is the new way businesses buy from businesses. So it is a conversational marketing platform that makes it really easy to uh, connect with your most qualified buyers on your website in real time, be it through qualifying them through a bot and then booking a meeting or targeting your specific target account list with a personalized message and then having your sales reps jump in, all sorts of products that we offer during that buying process. We have a video product, a chatbot product, and an email product uh, to help that whole buying process.
0: That's pretty cool. You know, I want to jump into the presentation you did for the product led summit. You were talking about how people can build products that acquire users. And one of the things you talked about is market alignment. Why is that so important for building products that actually acquire users, the market
1: alignment? Yeah, so I think a lot of, when you think about enterprise level companies and B2B type companies, a lot of those in the 90s and early 2000s were built on the backs of really expansive sales organizations that we're really good at acquiring customers because of just the sheer volume of emails and phone calls and all that. And as you're well aware of this, as we move to this more of a product-led world, what's extremely critical is that the people in the market immediately understand what it is that you do or you can get them to value quicker or really quickly. And so the alignment in the messaging the offer, the onboarding, and that whole experience from the moment that someone sees or hears about your business is... And getting that right and getting it aligned and personalized to the type of user that you're going after is the only way that you're going to make a flywheel of product that continually acquires users. Um, Because without it, then you you can ask people to sign up on your forum all day long or on your website, but without actually knowing the context in which someone is going to think about, find, and then evaluate your product from that lens, you're going to have a hard time acquiring a lot of users in, in any fashion, whether it's B2B or B2C or D2C.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. And one thing that you said there is that product experience Actually starts before somebody gets into your product. One thing that I learned from that presentation you made is that Product actually co-owns the website for Drift. I'm curious how that came about. And you know, just adding to that, your the Drift website is really, really well done. It's totally different from other SaaS websites, which a lot of SaaS website looks almost the same. I think you mentioned that in the presentation where there's an illustration on the right and it's a very white background. But you know, front and center with Drift is people, like people's faces. Uh, very bold color. So I'm curious how product co-owns the website with marketing and how that kind of works.
1: Yeah. So a little over two years ago, we spun up a growth team at Drift, which was worked in product. So it had engineers and designer and product manager, and it was tasked with driving acquisition, acquisition and activation. And so in that, we could work all day on changing the onboarding flows, but in order to drive acquisition, we needed to extend the product experience further up the funnel to Mm. the website, right? And so during that time period we were working through acquisition, it made sense for us to really actively work with the marketing team to run our own A-B tests on the website for different segments and all that because... Without that, like if you are on a team that is trying to acquire users and you have a product focus, without that alignment with marketing where you have say and are working with them on the creative and the experience and all that, you could wind up in a place... And there's a lot of products out there where this happens. I'm sure... You, you could probably think of some cases where you've seen it or you'll see it sometime in the near future where you go to this website and it's really beautiful and it's really special seeming. And then you get to like a sign up page and it's totally different. Like the color scheme is different and the font is different. And uh, all this like coolness is just now two boxes, two boring boxes, right? And say sign up. And then the next page, when you enter that, it's like whole new color blocks and all that. So the way that you can drive like a better experience and better acquisition is to have that alignment. And then uh, to the point of our website looks different than a lot of the other companies out there, I think there's two ways to look at this. One, you can match the standard feel of illustrations and design in order to feel safe as a product or offering, because then someone goes to any of those websites and, you know, Dropbox, Airtable, I don't know how, they don't all look as similar today (laughs) as they used to, but you go to those websites and you just feel like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm used to this, the way that this looks. So I'm, I'm comfortable here. Whereas we at Drift our, in our DNA and in our brand is to challenge the status quo. Mm. And so our, Branding and our marketing aligns with that in that it feels different because we are different, right? It is part of that fundamental statement and value prop for us, so that's why we have a different feel than most sites out there.
0: Mm. I want to kind of dig into that. How does that work with you know co owning the website with marketing? Like who owns who essentially? Like how does that, that dynamic uh, work?
1: Yeah, so. We have shifted the way that our teams operate a little bit over the past Mm. year or so. And when we were doing it, there was like a year, year and a half period where we were really actively co-owning it because we were so focused on the acquisition piece. We had an embedded growth marketer on our product team. Mm. And that growth marketer was like the person that owned the chatbots that were on the pages and the website variants. So... Having the person that owns those experiences embedded on our on our team helped us create this clearer picture of the funnel and the data and the experience and so it was fundamentally a marketer that worked on it, but they were embedded in our team with our goals right. uh, and serviced the rest of the marketing team through that and there were of course some places on the website where uh, you know if we were focusing at any given point in time on acquisition of uh, small, medium businesses, SMBs, then we would section that off and say, we're going to experiment with this and do all of our stuff here. The rest of the marketing organization isn't really worried about it right now. They're focusing on like the enterprise pages and the security pages. And so they own that. So we would, as the goals change, we would kind of draw the line to say, we have free reign on this piece and we're going to try out all of our different experiments on it.
0: Mm, That totally makes sense. Yeah. I want to Jeff gears talk about, you know, the metrics that the product team focuses on. I know Wes mentioned to me that part of the metric that product team owns is revenue goal, which you know is quite unique. Often it's the marketing team or the sales team that owns revenue. How does that work at Drift?
1: Yeah, so I would say that this is certainly something that we have evolved to. So we're about 400 people total at the company now. Uh, a little over 100 are in the product organization, and so I will say that I don't think that a 30-person company can have a product organization that like really owns a revenue goal. It's just very, very difficult to do unless you're a, uh, you know, a, a very specific type of business. You know, maybe a B2C or a D2C. And for us, the way that we have it structured, there's a couple different ways that we think about it. Uh, one. If we are building a feature set that that is a strategic bet in the market, then we might have the product manager and the product leader on that might have a goal that is to drive a specific amount of pipeline. So in coordination with the sales team, we want to know that our feature set is involved in 50% of all enterprise deals in the next quarter. Or... Uh, in some other cases, if you have a product team that owns this is something that we did, if you have a product team that owns all of the upgrade flows and adding users or adding seats, we charge for seats. So adding seats or upgrading, having the product team own the mm. uh, a revenue metric of how many seats are being purchased each month, that really, really aligns them to the outcome. And it then becomes less about in this specific example of uh, seats, adding seats, it becomes less for the product team about, oh, did you make it easier? Well, that's great. But what really matters is, are more people buying more seats when they want to? And because it's easy and because there is more incentive to do so, right? And so having the Pipeline goal or revenue goal, if you own any sort of monetization flows, are really, really powerful and then for other parts of our product, we have some that are specifically built to serve customer success managers or to serve getting customers healthier and with that, we share so maybe the customer success team has a goal that is x percent net retention rate for right. all of q three then the product team will actually just share that exact goal. And what happens then, which I, I find really magical, is that it forces the product manager and the, the folks on the product team to think beyond mm. their world of the product itself and the UI and forces them to say, all right, well, sure, we could build this, but like, in order to drive net retention or expansions, we have to arm the customer success team with, all of the education Mm. uh, in order to use this thing properly. And if they can't use it and they can't talk about it and customers aren't finding it on their own, then we're failing, right? And so it creates this really magical relationship where uh, those organizations are super closely aligned Mm -hmm. in what the outcomes are, right? I think the revenue goal being associated to a product team is all about getting the product team to focus entirely on the outcome and not just like they're not just calling the thing done when it's shipped that's so good i think that's one thing that comes to mind also
0: is i think a lot of teams tend to be very siloed like so the product team like you talked about they focus on the ui marketing they do the things customer says does that thing and then now with this shared goal it becomes like a unified team all rowing in the same direction yep before this co-owning of the goal was it like that was it did it seem a little bit more
1: siloed and now it's more unified yeah i would say it's absolutely more siloed and what happens or at least what i've seen is if you're at a company that's relatively fast growing then all the de- all the departments are going to get built up relatively quickly and right. and focus on well we're adding all these new team members we have to build processes for our mm. stuff to not break or we have to evolve or develop our own processes and so what happens in that stage of for us it was hundred 100 employees to about 250 employees where all those different groups were like building their own new ways of operating and everyone's moving so fast that they are riding and dying on their own team's ability to succeed, which is totally fair. but then what happens is you come out the other side of it when you're 250 people and you're looking at all the groups and you're saying, huh, everyone is like doing their own thing now. Like It was unintentional, right? No one said like, all right, we want all the departments to operate in silos. I mean, no one says that. I don't, I think people say that these days, but it happens as a result of the growth and the focus on the team's own processes. So having this shift towards shared goals even if they're not specifically revenue uh, with other departments and other teams has really broken down those silos and it makes some really special things happen where right now we have uh, something that we launched uh, a month ago or so, which is for an enterprise offering. And we are now really seeing the customer success team and the sales team, and the account management team rally behind the feature set that we built in a Mm. way that, I am less convinced would have happened if we weren't like focusing on driving the momentum in the other parts of the organization beyond ourselves, right? We would have just like built it and said, here's how it works. And then like tossed it over to product marketing uh, or, you know, enablement or whoever it might be. But now like it, it has made us more involved in that and more hmm. invested.
0: And I think this also ties to your quarterly planning. Now you talked about your Q3 you know now your the discussion revolves around you know how can we hit goals versus i think maybe product teams would be like oh what features do we need what is a product roadmap this quarter you know can you talk a little bit about what the quarterly planning looks
1: like compared to what it was before yeah it's funny because the quarterly planning changes every quarter <laughs> a little bit and <laughs> the way that we set and think about goals one of the ways that we're thinking about it right now is very use case driven so we think about what, what are the use cases that all the different teams are trying to enable, whether those are adoption use cases or expansion use cases. So getting, uh, enabling a customer to get even more out of their account or just getting set up in the first place. We think about all the cases that we're trying to drive and solve for the customer. And then right now we're focusing on like aligning what all those things are and then looking at, all right, what are the resources and what are the teams that we have to put on these different core uh, use cases. And then from there, we will take it one step lower to say, all right, what are the exact KPIs for each of these goals, for each of these teams as it relates to the use case. And that's when we'll go through this cycle of saying, Mm -hmm. all right, do we want this team to align with a pipeline goal for the sales organization? Do we want this team to align uh, with another? So we're trying to work our way down from super high level. Whereas I think in previous cycles, we were spending a little bit more time thinking about the goals from the let, let's carry forth all the stuff that we're already doing, and a little bit less of the zoom out. And so, I think it's ongoing, evolving process. And if you ask me in two quarters, what our quarterly planning <laughs> and goal process is going to look like, it's totally going to be different. <laughs> that,
0: that's cool, though. And that's part of the evolution. You know, if you don't change what's happening now, you don't know if you know you can optimize the process. I'm Talking about optimizing, one of the other things you talked about in that presentation is product channel fit, which is something that I, I don't think a lot of people think as much about. It's like, well, I'm building this product. What's the best channel to to build it around? Can you explain that a little bit more? Particularly what you said in that presentation is certain products align perfectly with acquisition gold mines, you said.
1: Yeah. So this is something that I've learned from uh, Brian Balfour and all of his content out there. He, He talks a lot about product channel fit. And the way I would think about it is most products or companies have one core channel where... And let's just for sake of explanation, use the Pareto Rule preto law Preto rule rule here for the eighty twenty it 's like eighty percent of all your new customers are going to come from one given channel and or you know eighty percent of your leads you're going to come from one given channel, and so I think what 's really critical, I think people talk a lot about product market fit early on, and I think what you 're getting at here is that sometimes even product channel fit is even more important, and I think the channel also changes over time, so mm. for us, really early on our product channel fit was product hunt. And if you go to Product Hunt and you look for Drift, you'll see that we have like 25 things that we have launched on Product Hunt because that was the main driver for all of our signups and our customers in the early days of building Drift. And so we found that channel and then we really doubled down on it as much as we could. And so for some folks, like maybe a D2C company or a consumer goods company, their channel is going to be paid ads and probably going to be specifically. Either Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter, right? There's going to be one channel that works really well, and I think there is this inherent desire to branch out to as many channels as you can early on because you're just you're just trying to like find all the places where you can get uh, new people to sign up and become customers. And I think in that process, it's easy to neglect. The one that is working best for you because you're so focused on Mm -hmm. trying to like add more to the top, where you may leave that channel that's working really well for you in a state where someone else can show up with a similar offering or similar value prop and then take that channel from you, right? And then now you're gonna have a really hard time, right? And so, for some cases, like I think early on, I would say Spotify found their product channel fit in the sharing of songs on Facebook feeds, Mm -hmm. on Facebook news feeds, right? They found that that channel was really powerful at getting new users to sign up. And so they doubled down on it. So every new user that signed up had all their songs like posting to Facebook. And obviously people didn't really love it. I didn't love it. I turned it off as soon as I realized it was happening. But I remember at the time, I don't know what year it was, maybe 10 years ago or so, when Spotify was just becoming a thing, the Facebook newsfeed was riddled with Spotify stuff. And I do think that that was one of the reasons that Spotify really beat out RDO. RDO was another like really yeah. up and coming music streaming service at the time. And Spotify was the one that beat them to the punch in that product channel fit of Like what are my friends listening to? My friends are listening to this music and then they built upon that. And then of course they have, I mean, you open Spotify on your computer and they have the friend activity sidebar and it's not necessarily their core feature any longer, but it was one that really helped them through that next stage. And so I just think that it, it's really critical, especially early on, to mm-hmm. find the channel that works. And then once the channel works, double down on it in, as much as you can, while in parallel you do some work to find new channels, but you can't just like leave that one behind right. in the pure search of as many channels as you yeah. can get.
0: No, that's so good. I, that I listened to this other podcast called How I Built This, and they interviewed the CEO of Duolingo. And one of their biggest driver of growth was when they launched their app store, like app, and they were the first one. So yeah, that's really fascinating. Yep. That it's a good point to build that up.
1: Yeah. And Evernote, Evernote too. Oh yeah, Evernote, yeah. you're right. They were one of the first ones in the app store. And so they became like the de facto app for note-taking, right? Mm. And so there's this mix of, can I find a channel that exists that will work really well for me? And then also an important way to view it too is, what are the new channels that are emerging right now? And how can I be a part of that, right? That's what Spotify did with the Facebook thing. It's what Evernote did with the App Store. I'm sure, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm sure some company is gonna figure it out on TikTok, right, that like that is a massive channel. Uh, And I I haven't seen like a growth, you know, app success story come out of it yet. Aside from TikTok itself, but I think that is another channel that I think people probably scoff at right now. But if you're really thoughtful about it and you have a product that like just matches really well with that channel, then you can really build something great.
0: What do you think about the other end where like you create that channel? Like, you know, let us say like Shopify or Salesforce, they're purposely building like APIs so people can build on top of that. Yeah. What are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, I think it's certainly a path to take. I think it's a it's a difficult path. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's usually, at least my take on it, I'm sure some people are going to disagree with, that, with this, it seems that it's usually easier to, if you want to take that route, these days you start with the, we're going to integrate in all the other tools. And yeah. then you flip the switch into, mm-hmm. we are now yeah. the place where you build upon, right? Like Salesforce wasn't able to build their... Exchange marketplace out of the gate, right? They had to build all the foundation first, and yeah. then say, "All right, other people can build their businesses on top of our product."
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense. Like you're, it's easier to ride a wave than it is to try to create a wave.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. And Apple with the App Store, right? Yeah. They first had to get iPhones in everyone's hands.
0: Yeah.
1: or yeah. and they have with iTunes, they had to get iPods in everyone's mm. hands first, right? Mm. You have to like build a foundation set, and then you can do it. It's true, I want to shift gears and,
0: and talk about user onboarding, such a big part of product led growth uh, companies. You know, I signed up for Drift last night, I set it up on product.com. User onboarding <laughs> was uh, super, super easy. You know, one of the things that I noticed was I was signing up for it, I was putting in like my name, I was putting in like, the product Led Institute, and I was seeing like this little image on the right that's starting to update. I thought that was super cool to visualize what the end goal is going to be. You know, I'm curious. I'm guessing this tactic is effective, but I'm—I just want to confirm that with you. You know, is this effective in getting more people to complete the the sign up process, seeing that end goal?
1: Yeah, it's funny because that flow that you went through—if you go to sign up for a free account uh, at Drift—that flow was built almost four years ago, like three and, <laughs> and a half years ago. Yeah, uh, and it's funny because we spent a lot of time when we were building it thinking about, are less steps better or are more steps better? And most products out there had less steps. And it was just like, email, password, get in the product. Uh, And we're working with one of our, one of like the advisors to Drift in the early days, uh, Heaton Shaw. He had done a lot of research and with his own companies, he had done uh, onboarding flows that were many steps versus a couple steps. And he found that the many steps Interesting. were consistently outperforming the less steps in getting a user to actually activate. And so we just built it on the on the back of that data set. And I think we're all pretty proud with it. And, and we looked at it and said, how can we make this a really special experience for people? And when, when you think about the product that we offer for a free user, it's about taking this widget and putting it on your website as like, your storefront, right? Where people can chat with you. And what felt psychologically important was that you can make this thing your own, right? Mm. And so we embodied that I want to make this thing my own concept throughout the flow where you pick the color and then you see it update and then you, right? Because now you also, and we're also using the principle of, um, it's like commitment bias or or something along those lines where I am spending all or some cost fallacy right i'm spending all this time and i'm making this thing mine there's no way i'm gonna walk away from it now that thing's mine and i've spent i've done all these steps and so it has worked well and we tried other some other approaches to it and we consistently found that this one was uh still performing better than most
0: that's super cool i think you're right like sometimes i wouldn't call it friction but adding a few steps that make people own that uh, actually does help quite a bit yeah the other thing I noticed is that as soon as I got into Drift, I, you know, I installed it, there's like this getting started checklist. Three out of the five was already like checked out because I already completed the process. The other two items were complete your online profile and you know set your online and offline hours. I'm curious what the purpose of the last two tasks is or is it just trying to like really start really owning this, you know, get them more in bed with, with Drift so that it's harder for them to pull away?
1: Yeah. Generally, we saw those pieces as what are just core functionality things that we wanted people to get get rolling with. To be honest, we actually we kind of need to update that <laughs> part of the flow. we We don't really love that we have that piece anymore. It's a little bit neglected. but it, at the time, the the reason for it was, well, we want to continue. You know you spent all this time building a widget and in the onboarding flow. We want to continue that momentum, right? And so we put that checklist in the app as the way to continue to build that momentum. And one of the things that we're, we have been building out over the past year or so is a different onboarding flow, fundamentally different onboarding flow for a free user mm. versus a paid account at a certain level. So if you were to have instead purchased Drift at the $500 a month plan, you would have gotten a very different onboarding mm. that was similar in the in the steps, but the steps are very specific to the what are the things that we know that these types of accounts need to do in order to be successful, all driven by our revenue data, retention data, and all that.
0: It mm-hmm. really makes sense. I want to start wrapping up and you know this second to last question I want to ask is I love asking this question because you know you can leave whatever piece of advice that you have if you had one or two pieces of advice for people about growth or product or anything else that you want, what would be those one or two pieces of advice?
1: Sure. So I'll give two that are closely related. One, I watch a lot of really early stage folks get caught up in the, well, we need to A-B test this thing. We have to experiment Mm. on this. Like, well, we got to run, we got to run the data on it. What's our funnel look like? And I, I think that, there's this tendency to get ahead of yourself and like have perfect data reporting and A-B test things when you're early on. But when you're early on, like it's sure you can use data to inform it, but unless you're B2C and you have some crazy usage spikes early on, uh, you're going to have a hard time getting any significant amount of data to really make decisions. So if you're building anything in B2B, it's so much more important to stay as close to customers as possible Mm. and make your decisions based on that and not get too caught up in like, Oh, we have to track everything. And what about like this button click and this onboarding flow? And you know, how many people are clicking this thing in the app? Like those things matter so much less than which of our channels are working the best. Do our customers understand what the value prop is? How Mm. are they using it? Why are they buying it? all of those pieces are critical. And then I think once you get to a stage where you actually can have enough data to make like truly data-informed decisions, then there is this tendency to, now you finally have data, right? Now I want to go all in on the data and the tendency is to go all in on the data. And then you leave behind the direct relationships with the customers. And I've, I've seen myself go through the cycle. And every time I pull myself back out of it and say, like, data is not all of it. And I'm just going to go talk to a bunch of customers. I wind up pulling as many, if not even more insights out of that. So I think it's it's like, don't get caught up in data too early. And then once you do have the data, don't get caught up in the data only. Mm. Otherwise, you'll you'll miss out on all the other competitors and folks that are really close to the customer and are just going to like start to catch more stuff before you are because you're just looking at reports all day long.
0: That's so good. I totally agree with that. Uh, just one final question: Where can people find out more about you and your work online? You know, this is your call to action. What What do you want them to do?
1: Yeah, my handle on pretty much anything is at Matt Pilati. Uh, my email is mattatdrift com. Feel free to reach out. Hit me up on LinkedIn if you have questions or anything that I might be able to help out with or any if you want me to expand on anything I've talked about here, just shoot me a note. I'm happy to answer. Uh, and then I have my own podcast, uh, The Growth Podcast. So just in the app store search for Growth, Matt Pilati. Uh, and then you should be able to find it. And thanks for listening. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, I totally second that. Go listen to Matt's podcast. Thank you so much for your time, Matt. I really do appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Thanks.